as we continue the story. This is going to be today's preaching passage. It's uh, Mark 15, 33 to 41. Hear the word of the Lord as we continue the story. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw it in this way that he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with them to Jerusalem. Well, church, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we seek to understand his holy word. Father in heaven, we are in awe of you. We are in awe of your plan of salvation. We ask that you would open our eyes to see you afresh this evening through your word. Help us to understand in better ways what Jesus did for us. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, we can listen to this story of Good Friday and feel like it's very familiar, like it's very normal. We can think, yeah, I know that story. I've heard it since I was a kid, for some of us. I get it. But friends, we never fully get the story of Good Friday. We never fully get what Jesus has done for us. We will spend all eternity plumbing the depths of what he has done. And so it is my prayer this evening as we consider this text that God would speak to you afresh, that he would allow you to see the story in a new way. And as we walk through the story, I want to highlight two actions coming out of this text that will help us to hear this story perhaps in a new way. The first is revisit his death. We're going to revisit his death. And the second is respond to him. So that first action comes from verses 33 to 38. And in these verses, Marx helps us to revisit three essential aspects of his death. And the first aspect Mark helps us to revisit is that Jesus went through unspeakable agony for you and for me. Now, we all know that Jesus certainly experienced physical agony, the physical agony of being on a cross, on a Roman cross. 
this method of execution of capital punishment was one of the most cruel forms of killing someone known to man at that time. We know he experienced the physical agony of the cross. We know that he experienced the emotional agony of being mocked, of being betrayed, of being abandoned by those who were closest to him. But there was a greater agony on the cross that he was experiencing. And it's described in verse 33. It says, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. If you were listening carefully to the readings, back there in chapter 15, Jesus, it says that Jesus was crucified at the third hour, at 9 a.m. And now it's been three hours, and darkness comes over the land at noon. Darkness in the middle of the day. There's no natural explanation for this darkness. Some have argued, well, it was just a solar eclipse in the middle of the day. Well, guess what? This was during the Passover. And during the Passover, it's a full moon. And if you know astronomy, you know that a solar eclipse cannot happen with a full moon. There's no natural explanation for this. This was a supernatural act of God. You may remember that darkness is used in Scripture as a sign of judgment throughout God's Word. Darkness was one of God's judgments upon the Egyptians in, in the Exodus. If you remember, it was, it was just blackness, darkness in Egypt. Amos, the prophet, says in Amos 8-9, he speaks of a day of judgment upon Israel where God says, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Well, that is exactly what God is doing here. He is bringing darkness at noon. It is a sign of judgment that is being poured out, yes, upon Israel, who is crucifying the very Son of God. But even more than that, it is a sign of judgment. God's wrath against his very Son. His wrath is being poured out against his perfect Son, Jesus. Think of it. God's wrath poured out for every single one of your sins. Every single one of my sins. Every evil thought. Every evil deed. And not just those in this room. Those throughout all history. In the past moving to the forward. God's wrath against sin being poured out upon the Son of God. The perfect Son of God. It's an event so dramatic so cosmic, so terrifying that God commands the sun to refuse to shine at the terror of this moment. And so after three hours of darkness, at 3 p.m., the ninth hour, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Jesus gives us a window into the agony that has been churning within his soul. So if you have your Bibles, I'll read it out, but it's on verse 34. It says, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma shabachthani, 
which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here Jesus quotes Psalm 22. Scripture is on his lips at his moment of greatest agony. But Psalm 22, it's describing what he is going through. The eternal Son of God, the one who has experienced unbroken fellowship with God the Father and God the Spirit for all eternity, feels forsaken by We have a small glimpse of what, uh, when we've sinned, when we've done something against God, the distance that we feel. But we have no idea what it is like for the perfect Son of God who has had intimate fellowship with the Godhead for all eternity, what that felt like when God's judgment was poured out on him and he felt forsaken by God. It's important that we stop to understand what's going on here. Of course, Jesus knew that he was going to the cross. He told his disciples three times. He told them in Mark 8, in Mark 9, in Mark 10, he said, I'm going to come, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be raised three days later. He's going to be beaten and raised three days later. He had told others of his death. Of course he knew that. Of course he knew that he had come to give his life as a ransom for many. He had told his disciples as much. Of course he knew that he was going back to the Father. Of course he knew that he would be victorious. Even in Psalm 22, which Jesus quoted, evoking perhaps the whole psalm, that psalm ends in a victorious tone. He knew he would be victorious, but now, in this moment, he was experiencing the reality of the full weight of God's justice and his judgment and wrath against sin. God's wrath against billions and billions of sins, against every evil thought, every evil deed that you and I have ever done. And Jesus suffers alone. He feels forsaken by God, like God himself has turned his face away. J. Oswald Sanders puts it this way. He puts it really well when he says of Jesus, he drank a cup of wrath without mercy that we might drink a cup of mercy without wrath. So we mustn't forget, friends, that Jesus did this for us. He did this out of love for the joy that was set before him. We mustn't forget that God so loved the world that he gave, gave his only son, that whoever might believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. He did this for you, and he did this for me. He suffered unspeakable agony on our behalf. Well, the second aspect of Jesus' death that Mark reminds us of is how Jesus was misunderstood. Apparently, some of the people misheard Jesus' cry from the cross. 
So look at verse 35 there. I'll read it out. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and and take him down. What's going on here, it appears that some of the people witnessing the crucifixion thought that instead of Jesus saying, Eloi, Eloi, in Aramaic, saying, Elias, Elias, Elijah, Elijah. You see, at this time, Jews in the first century, they thought that uh, Elijah, he had never died, so he would come to the rescue of righteous people. And they were thinking, well, perhaps this is a righteous man, maybe Elijah will come and take him down, take him down from that cross. The rest of the crowds and the religious leaders, they had been mocking him. They had thought that if Jesus truly was the Son of God, who if he was who he claimed to be, then he would be able to take himself down, or at least Elijah could take him down. But oh, how they misunderstood the purpose of the cross. What they misunderstood was that Jesus willingly went to the cross. Of course he could have taken himself down. He was the very son of God. Of course he could have called legions of angels and destroyed his enemies at any moment. But he stayed on the cross. He didn't come down because the payment had not been paid. You see, this was the only way for our sins to be paid for. It was the only way that the justice of God could be satisfied without us being destroyed. There was no other way. And friends, we're going to spend all eternity rejoicing that Elijah did not come and take Jesus off the cross. That Jesus willingly stayed up on the cross until it was finished. So the second aspect that Mark wants to show us is that Jesus' crucifixion was misunderstood by those who were there. And even this evening, perhaps for some of us, you've misunderstood the cross of Christ. He did this for you. He did this for me. Well, a third aspect of Jesus' death that Mark helps us to revisit is his victory on our behalf. So sometime after this cry of despair, when he called out in Psalm 22, Jesus let out another cry. So listen to what he said in verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. This is not a cry of despair. This is not a cry of defeat. This is a cry of victory. John helps us fill in the gaps where Mark is a, he's a little understated. (laughs) Mark, Mark says things briefly, but John and some of the other gospel writers help fill this out. But in this moment, Jesus, as he lets out a cry, John tells us, he says, it is finished. It's done. The wrath of God has been satisfied. I have done it. I have drank the whole cup of God's wrath and it is done for all time. He suffered in our place 
sacrificing himself as a substitute. We deserve to be on that cross. But Jesus did it so that we might have life if we believe in him. And then the text says he breathed his last. Again, Mark is very brief in his comments. But Luke fills this out a little bit more. And he says that Jesus at that moment cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He gave up his life. No one took it from him. But he gave up his life for us. Well, to give further evidence of Jesus' victory, Mark says in verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, in the temple in Jerusalem, this was only a short distance from where Jesus was being crucified, probably just a couple thousand feet, less than half of a mile. And there were two massive curtains in the temple there was a, one curtain that separated the holy place from the court of Israel. And then as you went further into the temple, there was a curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And almost certainly Mark is talking about that second curtain. Remember, the holy place was a place that only the priests could come and minister. And the holy of holies was a place only the high priests could go. And that but once per year to offer sacrifice for the people. And as Jesus died, as he said it is finished, as he gave up his spirit, the curtain, it says, was torn from top to bottom. Unless we think this was done by human hands, this curtain was 60 feet high. It was 30 feet wide. No human hand tore this curtain. This was torn by the hand of God. And it symbolized that the temple was no longer needed. That animal sacrifices were to be no more because the perfect sacrifice had been done. It had been accomplished. Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. He was the perfect lamb of God offered once for all for our sins. So when Jesus uttered his victory cry, the temple torn in two. Jesus' death changed the world. The curtain was torn. His death ushered in a new covenant in his blood. We're going to celebrate that in just a moment in communion. And because Jesus was forsaken, we were given the opportunity to have direct access to God, to come into the holy of holies. Well, as we marvel at these three aspects of Jesus' death, his unspeakable agony, how he was misunderstood by those who were around the cross, and his victory for us, it leads us to our second and final call from this passage, which is to respond to him. First, let's look at the responses of those whom God chooses to focus upon after this monumental event. He highlights some very unlikely characters, some unlikely witnesses. He highlights a Roman military officer, 
and then a bunch of women from Galilee. So let's look at the Roman military officer first in verse 39. It says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, Jesus, he said, truly this man was the son of God. You see, Roman centurions were soldiers. They had normally common soldiers that had been um, promoted a little bit to be in charge of 100 soldiers. That's what a centurion means, 100, 100 men that they were in charge of. This centurion was not likely a Jewish man. This was likely a, a Gentile, one who was tasked with overseeing the execution of Jesus. Apparently, he wasn't too bothered by those who were spitting on Jesus under his charge, who had mocked him, who had beaten him. In fact, maybe he had commanded it. But as he witnessed this crucifixion, Surely he had witnessed tons of crucifixions in his day. He realized that something was different with this man, Jesus. First, there was the darkness over the land for three hours. That was surely different. He had never seen that before. But then there was his death. Instead of growing more and more weak and suffocating to death in weakness like most criminals would, here Jesus uttered a loud cry. How did he have the strength to utter this cry? The centurion must have asked. It was a cry of triumph. The centurion saw that Jesus wasn't so much killed as he gave up his spirit. This Jesus was different. He was different than all those other criminals he had seen crucified. And even in his pain, and even in his agony, Jesus, this criminal, who didn't seem to be a criminal, he was different. Somehow he was in control. And at that moment, when he witnessed the death of Jesus, something clicked in the centurion's heart. The Spirit moved in him, and he proclaimed, this truly was the Son of God. You see, the centurion looked at Jesus on the cross. He looked at the way that he died, and he affirmed that he was the Son of God. Amazingly, he is the first person, the first human in Mark's gospel to affirm Jesus as the Son of God. It's how Mark introduced Jesus at the beginning of his gospel. In chapter 1, verse 1, he wrote, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now we have a Roman, a Gentile, a centurion, who is the first person who affirms that identity in the whole gospel. Notice who it wasn't who affirmed his identity. It, it wasn't the religious leaders like the high priest who declared Jesus guilty of blasphemy and affirmed him worthy of death. It wasn't the other chief priests and scribes who mocked Jesus saying, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. And it wasn't the common people like the bystanders who mocked Jesus' claims to destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days who tempted him to come down from the cross to save himself. No, it was a Roman centurion who looked upon the death of Jesus 
and believed. This should give us great encouragement this evening because it tells us that we do not need to have a certain background to come to Jesus. We don't need to have specific religious training to come to Jesus. We don't need to even be a good person to come to Jesus. What we need to do is look upon the death of the Son of God and believe that he died for our sins. And so the question this evening for some of us, for all of us, is do you believe? Do you believe? Well, now let's turn to the other unlikely witnesses that are highlighted here. Listen to verses 40 and 41. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. What a name. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Isn't that just how the Lord works? He chooses what is despised in the eyes of the world, what is weak in the eyes of the world to shame the strong. Because women at this time in the first century, they were not valued. This was a male-dominated society. Women could not even stand in a trial at a court of law. They could not even be witnesses. They were not trusted. That's what Josephus tells us in his antiquities. But according to the Lord Jesus, they are valid witnesses. In the kingdom of God, women are highly valued. God's ways are not our ways. This is not a coincidence that women were the ones who were the witnesses at the cross that are remembered by Mark. Notice how these faithful women stayed with Jesus till the end. We learn here in the text that they had been accompanying Jesus throughout his ministry in Galilee. They were his followers. They had heard him teach. They had seen him perform miracles. Luke 8 tells us they even provided for him out of their own means. These were part of Jesus' ministry team. There were many women here, but Mark highlights only three, likely because these are the three that are going to first witness the resurrection. Mary Magdalene. We learn in Luke 8 that seven demons were driven out of Mary. Then there was this other Mary. Apparently everyone was named Mary back then. She's identified as the mother of uh, James and the younger and Joseph. It's not Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's a different one. And then Salome, who in Matthew we learn is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So friends, I just want to take a quick moment to recognize the essential place in God's kingdom that women have. These women ministered to Jesus. They were his financial supporters. And we'll learn on Easter Sunday that these three women were the first to learn of Jesus' resurrection. So God teaches us through these details. Jesus loves and values women. And any church that wants to honor the Lord, must do so as well, including Hope Fellowship. And we do. We love you. Any women here, we love you. 
because the Lord loves you. But all not, not all the witnesses were positive. As we observe here, there were many others who mocked Jesus, many who doubted his claim to be the Messiah, many who went along with the crowd, who went along with the prevailing narrative about Jesus. There were many who were too afraid to speak out. And so now we're going to move to a time of communion here in just a minute, continuing to remember the death of Jesus together. The question before us this evening is what is your response to the death of Jesus? What is it going to be? Is it going to be like the centurion that you see and consider the death of Christ and you respond in simple faith saying, I believe, I believe you are the son of God and that you have taken away my sins. I pray that's the response of all of us. If we haven't done so already, that for the first time tonight, that would be your response. Or is our response going to be like these faithful women, whether you're a man or a woman, being a person who will not abandon Jesus, but instead follow him wherever it may lead and be willing to play a role in the most important story ever told? Or will you respond like the crowd, afraid to say something about Jesus, afraid to identify with him, ashamed of him in a hostile culture that hates him, or worse, mocking him, testing him because of your own unbelief. Friends, if you're in that category, again, Jesus is holding out his hands to you afresh tonight. This evening, Jesus has been presented to you, as Paul says in Galatians 1, being publicly portrayed as crucified. His death demands a response. We can't be in the middle when we consider the death of Christ. We can't ride the fence. There's no fence riding. So what is your response going to be? Is it going to be mockery and doubt? Or is it going to be belief and trust in that this is the very Son of God? which will lead to service and joy unspeakable. Well, how you answer that question is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are humbled and amazed that you would do this for us. We thank you for going to the cross for us. We thank you for bearing God's wrath for our sins so that we might not have to. We thank you for counting us not guilty and for giving us your perfect righteousness for all of us who have trusted in you. Lord, I ask that now as we come to your table, as we take time to further reflect on your death, that you would break our hearts before you. You would help us to see that we are undone in your presence, that we have nothing to bring, but we have one to trust in. We trust in your perfect, completed sacrifice, Lord. 
And we ask that during this time, you would expose our secret sins. You would expose the defiance of our hearts against you, that you would help us embrace you afresh this evening. We affirm, Lord, that you paid it all. Nothing in our hands can we bring. And so we worship you and we give you all the glory. And we pray this all in your name. Amen.